I stand in awe of God so many times. And um, I can just, I can feel his presence here today. Um, Brent used some scripture that I'm going to use in just a few minutes that has just been on my heart. Um, it's 2 Timothy 2.13 that if, even when we are faithless, God is faithful. Um, I want to share the story of a dear friend with you. He is in his um, 50s, and he has had some things in his life that made him very angry with God, and he just decided he was just going to forget God existed. He was going to just say, you know what? I don't believe him. I don't believe he's even real. Whatever. I'm just going to live my life and do my thing. That was a few years ago. About six months ago, he was diagnosed with terminal cancer. That changes how you look at life. And he started looking around and he, he started noticing how he had been provided for, even when he shouldn't have been provided for, because he had not been a real active participant in life and stepping out and working and different things. And, and all of a sudden he realized how much God had blessed him and he thought, wait a minute, you are real. And he stopped and he looked and he said, you know, he called, he called me up and he said, you know what, I realized that God had been saying to me, you know, feel, feel about me however you want to. I'm going to love you and I'm going to bless you. No matter what, you just, you just feel about me however you want to. I love you. And he called me and he said, I found him again. I've been praying for this person for 20 years. I contrast that, sorry. I contrast that with another friend of mine who is a nurse in a hospital unit that deals with end-of-life patients. And she'll call me, and she'll get frustrated. She'll say, I had another patient who led an awful life, was a horrible person, was terrible to their family, and they found God. And they and their family were reconciled and this person I know is going to stand in the presence of God. And I just, this makes me so mad because I have been going to church every Sunday. I have been going to Bible study. I have been going on mission trips. I have been serving him and loving him and growing in faith. That person doesn't deserve that. And that's when I say again, God's grace is not about what we deserve. God's grace is not about what we deserve. It's a frustration that, that we have, though. If we're honest with ourselves, sometimes we look around and, and, and we think, you know, that maybe somebody's getting away with something or somebody, you know, you know we question that end-of-life conversion. We, we try to figure it out, and we, um, we find ourselves not you know, not really understanding God and his grace. 
want to tell you about a few people in the Bible who can relate to that as well. They came to understand God's incredible, unconditional mercy. They came to understand it in different ways. One you'll know about because he ended up in the belly of a whale. Jonah was called by God to go to Nineveh, and he didn't like that call, so he ran, like lots of us do from our calls to ministry. And he ran, and he hopped on a boat, and he was headed to Tarshish, and the storm came, and they threw him overboard when they realized he was the problem. And next thing you know, he's in the belly of a whale. He's been spit out into the ocean after he prays to God for mercy. And then he finally says, okay, God, I'll go. So he preaches the message that God gives him, and the people of Nineveh repent. But he go, he's, he's preached this message, you know, you're going to repent, or God is going to have his wrath on you. And so he goes, he sits up on top of the hill, and he says, all right, God, do your thing. God doesn't do it. And that's when Jonah says, God, I didn't want to do this because I knew of your grace. I knew of your grace. I knew of your love. And I didn't want to do that because of this. And he sat there and he festered in that frustration over God's grace. Another person, and this one's in the, the New Testament, that we might know of. We might know it a different way, but many scholars call this the parable of the unforgiving brother. Is of the prodigal son. Here's this, this child. He's got a big brother. He's, he's grown up in this family. They're well off. And he comes to his dad and he says, you know what? I want my inheritance now. I'm ready to go into the world. His dad says, okay. Gives him his inheritance, and the, the kid goes off, and he wastes the money. He wastes it on harlots. He wastes it on partying. He ends up so destitute from blowing it that he ends up working in a pigsty, covered in mud all the time, just grateful for the slop that the pigs eat that he can have for his dinner. And one day he just has, he finds himself so low, he's ready to just, he comes to terms with it, and he says, you know, I'll just be happy to go home and just be a servant. But I just need something that's solid. So he goes home. And what does he find but his father running down the road to him? Now, in this day and time, that wouldn't have happened. They would have waited for him to come up. Fathers wouldn't have run to to them, but his father loved him so much that he ran to embrace his son. He threw his arms around him. He said, I am so glad you're home. He put a robe on him. He put sandals on him, put the ring on his finger. That ring on his finger established him right back in the role he was in before, gave him power and authority and resource in the community. And he said, look, we're going to kill the fatted calf. We're going to have a party. We are going to just let everybody know that it is time to rejoice because you are home. And then his big brother finds out. <laughs> his big brother's like, hey, Dad, I I've been here. 
all along. I hadn't asked you for anything. I'm right here. And he just doesn't get it. He's frustrated. He's like, what's happening? This cannot be right. Why on earth would you throw your arms open to him? Why on earth would you put him back in a restored position? Why on earth do you still love this child? One that spit in your face. That threw away what you'd worked for. That was careless. He does not deserve this. Crowds that followed Jesus often had similar thoughts. In Luke 19, we're told the story of Zacchaeus, and I, I love the little children's song. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. Now, you know I don't sing. Um, but um, anyhow, so Zacchaeus is this childhood Bible story that we're often told, but we, we revisit it, and when we revisit it, we learn when we study that the tax collectors were the worst of the worst. Picture the worst person you know. I'm asking you to judge right now. I know I'm, we're not supposed to do that, but picture the worst person you know. That's how a tax collector was seen. Tax collectors were the worst of the worst. They were recruited by the Romans because they knew, um, the Ro Rome knew that they would get the money that Rome wanted from people. Knew that they would be maybe push the edge and betray their neighbor and not really care too much about it. These were people that the religious authorities and the Talmud law forbid interaction with. They're right up there with prostitutes, with sinners, with the possessed, with different ones. You didn't associate with them. This is not like our IRS. IRS our IRS looks innocent compared to these guys. They would do everything they could to turn around and turn a profit and, and find ways to swindle their brother. Well, Jesus comes into town and Zacchaeus has climbed a tree to see him. We assume that's because Zacchaeus was short. But Zacchaeus has climbed this tree to see Jesus and made this extra effort because he just wants a glimpse of the person that people have been talking about. Well, Jesus, he knows, he knows the expectations about tax collectors. He knows the rules. But Jesus doesn't always like rules. Amen? And so he says, Zacchaeus, come on down here. I'm going to have lunch with you today. And everybody around is like, oh, no, he didn't. You are not going to have lunch with him. That is a tax collector. Jesus didn't have a problem with it. Jesus saw him as a child of God. The crowds would struggle, not just in that story, but in many stories with what Jesus would do. Because often they found that it was not condemnation and the exile that they were using to condemn their behavior and their morals, but he would find that they would find that not condemnation but love would transform a life, and the expectation of Jesus as any Jew in that day would have been to condemn them, to ban them, to put them on the outskirts if it was a social banning, if nothing else. 
But love changed Zacchaeus. Look at the story. Tell me where it says, Zacchaeus, you have to turn your life around and pay these people back. Zacchaeus' heart changed, and all of a sudden he said, you know what? I have not been a good person. And he turned around and he gave back what he had taken. Though it doesn't say it in the text, I have several seminary friends who um, I tend to agree with them that the prodigal son was also transformed by the love of God. We hear stories of how unconditional love changes people. I want to tell you the story of someone whose life was changed by unconditional love. And this is not a prescriptive for relationships or marriage or anything. What I want you to hear is how this man's life was changed by unconditional love. It's a man by the name of Swift, Smith Wigglesworth. Who's heard of Smith Wigglesworth? Yeah, he's got a pretty neat story. He had his wife, Polly, and he was not the kindest of men. She was a Christian. She loved God. She loved her church. And she would go to church on Sunday morning, and she began to be convicted of how she was to love her husband the way that God loved her. And so she would have breakfast on the table every morning, and that was one way that she showed how she loved him. But she came home from church one day, and he had, he had made plans for the day, and she came home from church one day, and she said, there's a service tonight, and I want to go to it. And it's January now, and she says, I'm going to go tonight. And, and he says, well, you go if you want to, but if you go, you're not getting back in this house. And she says, okay. So she wrestled with it all afternoon, and she went to church because God had laid it on her heart to go. God kept saying, trust me. Trust me, do this. Go to church. So she went to church and she came home and sure enough, she couldn't get back in. And it was cold that night. She didn't have anywhere to go, so she laid down. She laid on, on the porch and covered herself with the door, door rug. And the next morning, you know, he had gone to bed. When she left to go to church, he just went to bed. He didn't think anything of it. Got up. Saw her out there, opened the door. She came in and she said, let me fix your breakfast for you. I'm sorry I didn't have it ready. Now, I know, I know. I don't want y'all to hear that the wrong way. But what she was doing was being faithful to the way God had told her to love him. And she fixed his breakfast. Here's the part of the story that I want you to hear. At that moment, when she told him she would make his breakfast, can't do this without crying, um, Smith writes that in that moment, his heart broke because he felt the love of God. He did not deserve that. He deserved to be the one sleeping out in the cold. She deserved better. But God was at work in her, and God broke his heart through that love. He got on his knees, he apologized to her, he embraced her, and he started going to church with her, and he became one of the greatest preachers known. 
unconditional love. So many people can be converted by love. And yeah, we struggle. You know, we struggle. I I have watched how friends of mine have said that my friend I told you about with the terminal diagnosis, how they've said, you know, he's getting what he deserves. And I told him, I said, I don't care, pray anyway. And they'd see me and they'd say, you had not seen him lately, he's getting what he deserves. And I'd say, I don't care, pray anyway. Now my prayer didn't do it, but God's love did. God's testimony to him changed his life. Simple things that we do. Breakfast. Buy somebody a cup of coffee. Stop and talk to them when they look down. Or just decide you're going to pray for somebody. And just every morning, check off that you're praying for that person. Julie, I'm going to pick on you. I'm going to pray for Julie for the next month, and I'm making a commitment to that. Pick a person you're going to pray for. Pray for them that God's love will break into their heart and into their life because grace abounds. One of the things um, that we know about God is we can't outlove God. We can't go so far that God doesn't love us. We can be like Jonah, who can step back and say, you know what, God, I just don't like what you're doing here because I knew you were going to love them. But God can love the Ninevites. We can be like the older brother who says, hold your horses. No. No, I grew up in this house where there were rules and consequences, and I'm sorry, but he doesn't deserve all this. But God teaches us to love our brother, regardless of what they've done. We can be like the crowd who says, we aren't supposed to associate with that person. What do you mean we're supposed to welcome him in? What do you mean we're supposed to sit down and have a meal with him? Meals are important. You don't sit down with just anybody and have a meal, do you? God does. Grace is undeserved. That's the heart of the gospel. It's the reason he went to the cross for us. He wanted us to know how deep and how wide his love is for us. Do you remember singing that That song in school, or in in church, deep and wide, deep and wide. There's a fountain flowing deep and wide. That fountain represents God's love for us. When he would sit in the room with his disciples that night, that last time they would sit down and have a meal together, he tried to tell them about his love. And today we're going to remember that as we come to the table as well.